Good morning. I would say it's safe to say we are already having church, huh? Already learned some things. Testified of the goodness of God in our life. And Rick, I want to thank you so much for the beginning lesson in what will be, um, including this week, a 12-part attempt to break down and and explain the Apostles' Creed. I just don't think we could have had a better start to that. So I really appreciate your ministry there. And and I and I love you. I love for you as the church to see who our elders are and to see the men that I surround myself with. And you can see why I always feel like I have to try to up my game, right? When I'm around these guys and stuff. Not that they want me to feel that way, but they're so gifted and called of the Lord. And uh, the Lord's doing some great things in them as well. So. Um, and, and I'm hoping that what you're doing too, as we go through this, you have in your notes, the printing of the apostles creed. There's been a couple of, uh, changes and statements that we've made again, because this isn't scripture. It is extracted from scripture, but there's nothing sacred about the apostles creed that we can't adjust it for our better understanding. So in a couple of places we've done that, but I'm hoping what you're doing is as you take that home with you, that you would engage in the memorization of that with us. Um, we may or may not read it together. We don't know exactly yet how we're going to use it that way. But to have each of us individually be working on embedding these truths in our hearts, to have these truths uh, able to be recalled at the spur of a moment. Like we said last week, it is an answer to the question, what do you believe? Not that you're going to recite the whole thing or whatever, but you'll have those points in your mind and in your heart. So uh, we're hoping and trusting that, again, as a unifying exercise that the church, by and large, is working through the Apostles' Creed and memorizing it as it is written in your notes. And we'll have that in the notes every single week. And so uh, encourage you to do that. Um, as we are getting started in the book of Ephesians, I just want to bring your attention to a name from history that you may not have heard of. Uh, her name is Hetty Green, and she was labeled... America's greatest miser. She died in 1916 with a hundred million dollar, at least a hundred million dollar fortune. In 1916, that's a lot of cake. And, and in 2022, with gas prices the way they are, that's minimum wage. So anyway, um, she had a hundred million dollars at least in her account. But again, like I said, her title was America's greatest miser. So you know where this is going. She must not have used her wealth, right? Well, sure enough, no. And some of the examples of her avoidance of spending any of her own money are, are quite stark. From the silly, which is she would eat cold oatmeal on a regular basis because of the cost of heating up the water. She didn't think that it was worth the expense. But it gets more serious and heartbreaking when her son's own health condition required care for his leg as it was getting worse and infection was getting worse. And she searched so, so long and hard for free health care that she waited so long that his leg needed to be amputated. It's unimaginable, isn't it, to think about having such wealth and resources and not tap into those resources, to never use them. You and I, most of us at least, would say, hey, if I had that kind of money, I've got an entire list of the things that I would accomplish. Spending that money wouldn't be a problem for me. Now, there's a part of wisdom that says, now, I don't know if I could be trusted with that amount of money because I might burn through it in a week. I don't know, because who really needs 10 yachts? But I have one. I have them. So I don't know, but, but we look at it as a, from a standpoint of how silly it would be to have those resources and never tap into them. This is where we're going with the book 
of Ephesians, particularly in the first couple of chapters. Now, we could look at somebody who has that kind of wealth and not and not use those resources for uh, it could be a couple of excuses. Maybe they don't know they have that kind of money. That's happened before. I didn't I didn't even know I was loaded. I didn't know how much value I had in a particular thing or something like that. So we'd say, "Well, let's give them a pass on that." But now that you know, you've got an opportunity. Or as we saw in uh, uh Hetty Green's uh uh, example here that there's a, a crippling fear of spending because there's an, an idol of security. So it gets so bad that you can't let go of even a penny of it because you always want it there in case of an emergency. And then you have a hard time defining what a real emergency is because letting go of any of it creates an insecurity that is uncomfortable. Most of us though are somewhere in the middle of that where we kind of know what we have, what we're what we're valued at in terms of financial resources or things, or we wouldn't necessarily be so panicked with spending that we would just accumulate, accumulate, accumulate without, without spending any of it. But nevertheless, those extremes do exist. I think those extremes exist even in our Christian faith. And the great tragedy of the Christian life is to miss the enormity of what we've been given in Christ. For someone to come and tell us, do you realize all the vast wealth and riches that you have in Jesus? And then be like, yeah, I just don't want to tap into any of it, though. It would be as silly, even sillier than America's greatest miser. Now, as we come into the book of Ephesians, um, it is really the favorite book of so many people throughout history, and particularly a lot of biblical scholars from a lot of great names of people that have said, this is my favorite book. This is the one that is richest in doctrine or that perfect blend that Paul incorporates in this book. And so many people have, have sang its praises. It's been called the crown of Paul's writings, or it's been called the divinest composition of man. Or the queen of the epistles, which are the letters written to the churches. If we examine, just by way of fact here a little bit, that if we look a little bit closer into Ephesians as we get going in this, it comes off a little bit different than any letter that Paul has written before. Paul has written several letters to go to specific locations, to go to the churches, and he usually has personal names buried within the letter or individual circumstances that he's looking to clean up or 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 clarify or even to highlight and say, hey, you guys are doing great with this. And he makes it a very personal, writing to a very specific group of people. Ephesians is different. In fact, Ephesus as a name and a location doesn't even show up in some of the earliest manuscripts and it's caused a lot of scholars to maybe doubt that it was Paul or doubt that Ephesians that the Ephesians were even the recipients of the letter or anything. I think and I'm not alone in this, this isn't my own original thought, but I think what's going on here is that Paul had sent a letter primarily to Ephesus that he said, Hey, pass this on. I want other locations of other believers to uh, to hear what I have to say on this. So we would call that a circular letter. So in Ephesians, as we go through it, we're not going to see all these names that are being um, encouraged or these specific problems within the church of Ephesus being addressed. So why do I bring this up? Is it just because it's an interesting Bible study fact? It is that, but it's not the reason. 
Now, as Paul writes letters to specific places and deals with specific situations, some 2,000 years later, we still glean from that. We still apply it to our lives. We can look at a church like Corinth and go, wow, they had a lot of problems. But we study that letter of Corinthians and the second letter in a way that applies directly to us. So what I'm about to say isn't to negate that. But I think the reason why I find it encouraging that Paul intended this letter to go to multiple places is because there's perhaps a greater universality, if you will, to the uh, to the message that he's saying. Paul is writing this letter and several others from prison. He's already spent time building up the church in Ephesus. He spent several years with them. And then he gets himself in quote unquote trouble by doing the will of God and doing the work of God. And he and he's put in jail because of that. And he's writing a letter that perhaps if you're in jail and you're not sure you're getting out, you're not sure if you're going to, you know, be uh, let let free the next day or whether or not they're going to come down and end things for you. What are you going to say to the people that matter to you? And, and the fact that he didn't address it to people personally or specifically, I think lends to the fact that he said, if I were to say these words as my last words, I want the church as... I want the, the, um, the, uh, the, the universal church of Jesus Christ to hear what are the most important things. Now, again, this is my word, so I don't mean to say that his letter of Ephesians is more important than, say, Corinthians. That we would have to kind of explain through the, the lens of the, the canon of Scripture and how God has orchestrated the importance of all of these letters, and they are all of equal importance. But in particular, the things that he says to the church in Ephesus and the other surrounding area churches. I think we could sum up by saying this is what he wanted us all to be about as a definition. We're going to see major themes in this um, in this letter for probably some 30 or so messages. But in particular, we're going to see that he is aiming at building up the spiritual body of Christ. That's you and me. That's that's the church. It's not just the church here at 250 Kennedy Memorial Drive. It's not just the faith evangelical free church. It's not even just the evangelical free church as a as a national and worldwide association. No, this is believers who are calling on the name of Jesus Christ, who claim to be Bible believing followers of Jesus Christ, whether they're here in our city, here in our state, our country, in our world, or even in our area of, I mean, our, uh, our historic time, even in our current time that we live in, that this is the church that has, that has been, and this is the church that will be. And he wants to see that church built up. He's referring to the church here in several different ways. He's going to call us the bride of Christ. He's going to call us a temple of the Holy Spirit. He's going to say that we're soldiers in a battle. All of these images to build us up as a believing entity, as a living organism under the headship of Jesus Christ. So back to this word treasure. Why did we start with an illustration about money and talking so much about wealth and resources and things? And that's because that's what Paul talks about. He's going to go at unity from the standpoint of starting off with you and I understanding the vast wealth that we have afforded to us. He's going to use terms like inheritance or fullness or being filled. Specifically going to say riches. This is... Part of what helps us in the immediate context of his letter. 
He's writing to the Ephesians who are in what is considered to be the bank of Asia. They were walking in and out of uh, the streets and places and temples and all these kinds of things that were filled with wealth and money was a regular obsession for them and availability for them. It would be the same as if we wanted to send letters to our friends, our believing friends in Wall Street. And we wanted to say to them, how do I get across some very important truths? Well, I know where their head's at. They're in this stuff day in and day out. Almost all day long, they are thinking in terms of investment and return on investment and all of these other things that happen. So Paul is going to speak a language that the bustling economy of Ephesus is is forcing, if you will, into the hearts and minds of God's people. It's interesting, it'll probably come up a little bit later too, but it's interesting to note that even the, the headquarters of the cult of Diana were associated with the goddess Artemis is this massive temple that is one of the seven wonders of the world. And that was, of course, of of an incredible expense to build, and it was something to behold and to look at, but it even housed the most um, valuable art collection the world had known to that time. And this was in the midst of their quote-unquote worship. So why would Paul speak to them in financial terms? Why is he writing to them in this way of saying, if I wanted you to know something about, especially as I'm facing perhaps my final days, this is what I want you to know. Why does he speak to them of financial things? Well, he's not talking to them about money, at least not the money that they're familiar with. He wants to reveal the immense size of their spiritual bank accounts in Christ and wants to instruct them how to wisely live on these resources. You see, that that covers that other fear that we said we had. I'd have no problem spending or finding a way to use the $100 million that I have. My biggest fear is, would I be able to stop? Would I be able to keep some for the rainy day? Would I make wise investments? Would I honor my Lord with it? And that's what Paul is writing the second half of his letter specifically to address. First half, it's all about, do you know what kind of treasure you have? Second is, do you know how to live with that kind of treasure? Responsibly? Now, I just want to speculate a little bit here. It seems to me what Paul wants us to see, because I know where he's going with this. You know where he's going with this. We talked about it last week, that he's building up the church towards unity. So why does he start with financial discussion? Why does he talk about um, uh, like an open treasure chest, if you will, of resources that we didn't even know we had? I believe that Paul wants to hold high the value of our true wealth so that we can go, so that we can let go of our temporary and cheap values, the things that we get hung up on, so that we can better pursue unity. Let me say it this way. He says, you have something so valuable in your life that is the primary importance, the thing you should be chasing. But what causes fights, quarrels? What causes the things that James warns us about in his letter? What causes the tensions between the believers? It's when we make those secondary things more important than those primary things. So I think he's starting his letter off saying, these are the most important things that we all share together. And it's that shared treasure in Christ that he wants to elevate. In other words, the little that we settle for or that we fight over is really nothing in comparison to what we already have. All right, so let's get started in the letter. If you pardon me here, I just got a cough drop. Let's go to verses 1 and 2 as we open this letter together. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to make just a couple of direct points from our text, and one is going to come out of these first two points, and then make a couple of statements in the time that we have left. So the first point I want us to see is that as believers, we have a much bigger language than we even realize, and that this language is meant to promote unity. We just read a greeting to a letter, and if we read it quickly in our either our daily Bible reading or even in our Bible study, we might think that Paul's just setting the stage saying, hey, I want you to know it's me sending the letter. I send you warm greetings. Hey, grace and peace. All right, let's go. Let's line up. Now let's get into it. But actually, if we take the time to work through this, even this introduction, he's setting the stage for building up the church. He's setting the stage for um, encouraging unity amongst those who would otherwise be tempted to live separately. And so he's using language in a very specific way. He's using words that are very specific to what he wants to address. Now remember, not only is he under the influence of the Holy Spirit, but he's also sitting in prison. He's got time to think about this. So he's like, I want to craft my words just so. I want everything to count. And as believers, we have a much bigger language at our disposal than we realize, and it is meant to be used towards unification. So let's talk about this from a standpoint of identity. I don't know if you've noticed, but in our culture, identity matters to us a ton. We, who we are, who you see me to be, who I belong to, whose I am. What I'm going after, what the things I care about, like, or love, say about me. We care so much about identity. And Paul knows this. This isn't just a problem in the 2000s. This is a problem of mankind. This was a problem in the garden. And and this problem of identity or this obsession with our identity follows us partly because of how we were created. We were created to want to belong to someone. We would call that theologically, we were created to worship, to hold value to someone bigger than us, and that is God Almighty. So Paul starts off to help us see that even the names he uses matter. He's identifying himself as a as an apostle by the will of God. He's saying, I am a selected, appointed messenger. That's what apostle stands for. Now, we know officially apostle means there were a select few that were appointed by God to be the establishment and the order of the church that was being birthed. And Paul wasn't there when the disciples were walking with Jesus. He refers to himself elsewhere as, as an apostle born untimely or out of time. I was, I was, I came a little bit later to the scene than those guys did. But he says, nonetheless, I am an apostle by the will of God. Now, Paul was known by another name. And I would love to get more into his background and to walk us through the the detailed account of his transformation in the book of Acts. But we don't have the time for all that, but we can hit some of the highlights. Paul was known by so many before he came to Christ as Saul. No doubt probably named after King Saul back in ancient times. And he had a different reputation. We know of Paul. We refer to him as St. Paul. And we go, oh, he's so instrumental in building up the church and instructing us and pointing us forward and his passion and his brain and everything the Lord just used to pour out into the health of the church. But before all that, he was known as basically 
a terrorist to the church of Jesus Christ. We have a kinder word that we put on it, a zealot. But he was chasing down Christians and killing them literally, trying to kill the movement and the growth of the church. Acts 8 says that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He's not just picking his moments. He's like, we're chasing us down. We're snuffing it out. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And other parts of scripture and other translations refer to this persecution of the church as destroying it. So Paul's reputation was he was a church destroyer. Until he was struck blind by the voice of Jesus Christ as he was on his campaign trail ready to chase down, hunt down more Christians. And Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, um, uh, intercedes or intercepts him on, on the road and blinds him with light and says, Saul, Saul, why? Are you persecuting me? He says, who's talking to me? This is the Lord Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. From that point on, for, for many days, he was blind. He didn't know where to go. But we see that Paul's response or Saul's response was, okay, Lord, I'm listening. You have my attention. The disciples heard of Saul's conversion. They heard that he was holed up somewhere, that he was blind, that he was converted, we say. And then one in particular was told by the voice of the Lord to go and and retrieve him and bring him to the brothers. And he's like, uh, I don't really know if I should trust this voice. You know what he's done, right? And even when he did that and 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 freed um, Saul of his blindness, even the other disciples were like, oh, I'm not comfortable bringing the destroyer of the church into our midst. It took... It took some time, it took some trust, it took some faith for them to believe that what Paul was doing and saying was legit and wasn't some kind of ploy or trick. But nonetheless, they were convinced of his conversion. They were starting to see that Paul was no longer a destroyer of the church, but he was a builder. Maybe some of you have that transformation of reputation. Do you, do you think Paul, I say this kind of thing a lot because I know that we don't just to, to be forgiven doesn't mean we forget who we were or what we've been. Do you think Paul remembered what he had done? I mean, he witnessed the stoning of Steve in one of the sweetest moments in standing up for the name of Jesus Christ, a disciple who, who, who was bold enough to tell the religious, uh, um, authorities where they were wrong and where they were sin, but he was, he was also bold enough to proclaim the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. And for that, they, they kind of blocked their ears and they ran after him shouting and they drag him out in the street and they're doing this all at the feet of Saul and they're just, they throw stones on him and, and kill him. And it says that Saul approved of this. He oversaw it. He signed off. Okay, we got one down. We got a key one down. Cold and calculated. Do you think he forgot that man just because Jesus forgave him? So when, when Paul says, I am an apostle, he's not saying, you need to listen to me because I have the authority. This is an old Saul. No, he... He uh, qualifies it by saying, this is by the will of God. The will of Saul got his feet closer and closer and closer to the fires of hell. But the will of God transformed Saul to Paul from a destroyer of the church to one who would be an instrumental part of the builder of the church and primarily to bring in the Gentile into the circle 
of the faith that was reserved at one point for the Jew. So Paul has a new reputation that's building because of the will of God, not because of the will of Saul. So that's the reason why a name matters to Paul. But then he calls us and those that are receiving and reading the letter a name as well. He says to the saints. Now, in their mind, they would have been thinking, wait a second, he just called us saints. Like, we haven't heard that word. We've known that word for a long time. We picture it in little um, figurines or on stained glass or something along those lines. But but either way, we have a difficult time carrying that name over us as though something that really belongs to us. We think of of a saint as somebody who's been determined by the will of other people or in, in, a, in a particular religious system that says, oh, they have to have performed a miracle or something along that, that line. So now they've achieved sainthood. But Paul says, no, no, no. If you're reading this letter, those of you that are in Christ are saints. Paul had to kind of steal this word from the pagan culture of of religion that they were surrounded by in that Greek culture. Because they understood this idea of having things that were um, uh, uh, sacred or set apart, what we would call holy, they would have things like material things and temples and all that stuff that we talked about. And they would say that is set apart for our religious purposes, but it was also mixed with all of this like perverted um, behavior, things that God would eventually show them were completely sinful and destructive. So Paul says, you have a category in your mind for things that are, are, are set apart or sanctified for your religious purposes, but you haven't married it to the morality or the purity of the one true God. And so now he's saying, those of you that are in Christ are saints. So again, all of these words are on, pur- on purpose. It helps us to hear from the ears of those that are listening of that culture. Because Paul is now connecting the Greek understanding of consecrated things to the moral purity of God. These were pagan-born hearers who are now being given the privilege of being called holy and set apart for God's use, even though it was one time reserved only for Israel. Jews and Gentiles coming together in Paul's language. Our, our language, our vocabulary is bigger and more powerful than we realize. And names in particular matter. He says, you are saints and you are faithful. And we would say, okay, so now he's only talking to the people who have done a good job. Who happened to be there that Sunday when the letter was being written. They didn't miss it for something else. But that's not what he's talking about. Certainly there's an aspect of our faith informing our effort. We heard about that from Rick earlier. But he's simply talking about those of you that... Believe. He's going to clarify this for us a little bit down the road in verses 12 and 13. He's going to say, we who were were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, now here's the qualifications for being called faithful. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So how do I get being, how do I get to be called the faithful? Well, you heard the truth and you actually believed in it. Well, I haven't done a great job with that. My track record's been a little spotty or I'm growing in this thing. I don't understand it all yet. I couldn't teach any of these things yet. No, it's, it's, it's you heard the word and you responded in belief. You were given the promised Holy Spirit. 
Wiest explains this whole act of faith as taking oneself out of one's own keeping and entrusting oneself into the keeping of the Lord Jesus Christ. Names matter. Paul says that we who are reading this, not just those that were in Ephesus, are the saints and the faithful if we believe. Then he uses some important words to help us see that words matter. He tells them to, to have grace and peace. And, and grace we've defined in the past as getting the opposite of what we deserve. It's not just mercy which holds back what we deserve, which is punishment. Grace is, I'm going to withhold that punishment, but I'm going to give into your account. I'm not just going to wipe clean your debt and get you to zero. I'm actually going to put money in your account that you can actually learn to spend wisely. That's what grace looks like or unmerited favor. But I came across somebody's use of it this week that I can't quite remember who it was, but I like the simplicity of this statement. I think I included it in your notes this morning. That grace is the kindness of God to undeserving people. How simple is that? God was kind to you and me even though we didn't deserve it. This is a completely one-way effort. Now, really wrestle with this in your mind, in your heart for a second. God the giver, from the freeness of his heart, gave you something that he doesn't need in return. Most of us, when we give something, it's kind of like a very rare experience where we give something where we just don't instantly have a twinge of, this will probably come back to help me a little bit. Or I'm showing the kindness to these people or this thing or something like that with the kind of expectation that this is probably going to put me in good standing with them. That's just a part of our sinful flesh. There's, there's no depth in our core that Christ hasn't arrested yet that doesn't have some kind of angle sometimes when we're even doing good. So it's hard for us to imagine that grace would simply be, no, 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 you can't match this gift. No matter what you do, it will not come back to me the way in which I deserve. It won't match what I gave you, and I give it to you anyway. So Paul says, grace to you. And peace. And peace is twofold as well. We know that the scriptures have taught us that the first peace that you and I need to have is, 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 is with us and a holy God. When there was nothing but war before because we were born in our sin and he hates sin. He doesn't hate us. He hates the sin within us. So he sent his son to do away with that gap, to do away with that divide. And so in our faith in him, he accepts us and receives us. Our vertical peace with God is of primary importance, but that's not even just the amount that Paul is referring to here. He's, He's talking about practically in all of life. To, that we as believers, that we that have faith are, are untroubled and undisturbed. <laughs> Anybody have any trouble this week? Anybody have any trouble this morning? Anybody having trouble staying awake right now? That's a form of trouble. <laughs> We're undisturbed. It's not really how we would categorize our life in Christ, is it? Perfect peace. Void of trouble and being disturbed. But this is a sanctifying process. This is the the path that peace has put us on is that we grow more and more in this grace and we have less and less trouble, less and less of a disturbance in our life. Not because the effort isn't there from the outside, but it affects us less. 
So Paul says, grace, peace. He wants us to understand what those words are. But there's really something crafty and sneaky he's doing here. Goes back to something we said earlier. He's using his language on purpose. They, as they hear this, are hearing a unification of what Paul is bringing together, just simply in these words, grace and peace. The regular Greek greeting would have been probably how we pronounce kari, which is like chair with an E at the end of it. And that simply means rejoice. So if you're a Greek in that culture, you would say rejoice. You would say kari. The regular Jewish greeting, as you would have recognized and heard before, is shalom, which is peace. Or in the Greek, it would be Irene. Paul is bringing together both expressions for them. He's alerting Jews and Gentiles for unity, but he's going to strengthen the greeting to make it uniquely Christian. Rather than just saying, hey, rejoice in peace, he's saying peace, shalom, because that's established for God's people way back when. But now he's, he's adding to rejoice. Kari that ends with an E, if it ends in an I-S, which is charis, is grace. So he says, you have more than just peace with God. You have more than just a song in your heart. You actually have been given this undeserved gift and you share it in unity. Paul is giving them a unique greeting that is now theirs and they own it. I think somewhere in the notes in the reflection part at the bottom of the page, I have asked you to consider this week how your words can unify, how we say things to people with the intention of bringing things together as opposed to the off-the-cuff statements that we make, and I make them too, or the sarcastic responses. And again, I'm not trying to be legalistic here, but when we say, hey, how you doing? And we say, hey, live in the dream. We know it's cement to get a chuckle out of each other and stuff like that, and that's normal and that's fine. But every once in a while, taking the opportunity in just our simple responses, how do we make the statements that bridge us to the needs or the, the character of other people? And Paul says you're not going to get there until you see their identity in Christ. You say, well, I'm, I'm around people that aren't Christians. They aren't in Christ. No, but they are made in the image of God in the way that I communicate with them at least could acknowledge some of that as I show them greater respect and compassion. Our language is much bigger than we realize. Secondly, and we'll try to move through this quickly, that as believers, we have a bigger bank account than we realize. Okay, we knew it was just a matter of time. Brent's going all charlatan on us, and he's going to start raising all kinds of money and all that sort of stuff. But we've said at the outside, we're not talking about coin, right? The story is told uh, from probably 20, 30 years ago now, but about a guy who was a rock hound. He was, his name was Rob Cutshaw, and he owns a little roadside shop outside of Andrews, North Carolina. And like many in the trade, he hunts for rocks, then sells them to collectors or jewelry makers. He knows enough about rocks to decide which to pick up and sell, but he's no expert. He leaves the appraising of his rocks to other people. As much as he enjoys the work, it doesn't always pay the bills. He occasionally moonlights cutting wood to help put bread on the table. While on a dig 20 years ago, Rob found a rock he described as purdy and big. He tried unsuccessfully to sell the specimen, so he kept the rock under his bed or in his closet. You know where this is going, right? He guessed the blue chunk could bring as much as maybe 500 bucks, but he would have taken less if something urgent came up like paying his power bill. 
That's how close Rob came to hawking for a few hundred dollars what turned out to be the largest, most valuable sapphire ever found. The blue rock that Rob had abandoned to the darkness of a closet two decades ago, now known as the Star of David Sapphire, perhaps you've heard of it, weighs nearly a pound. And at the time of the writing of this article, I haven't looked up to see what it would be worth now, could easily sell for just shy of $3 million. As believers, there's something that we have in our possession that has greater value than we realize. And this is what Paul is starting to express as we get into verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I want to make just a couple of brief, prayerfully, remarks here on this point. And the first is that our currency matters. You heard of people that have some wealth, but they really can't get a handle on it or they can't use it when they need it. They, we would say that perhaps they're real estate rich, but they're cash poor or something. And a lot of people in the financial world understand that some amount of your wealth has to be liquid. You have to make a plan based on how quickly could I get access to it in an emergency so it isn't all tied up in things that I can't get a hold of. Our currency of our blessing really matters. And again, just to keep using Paul's vernacular here, we are talking about more than just money. We're talking about the spiritual blessings that are available to us, and they are quite liquid. They are quite available to us. Paul's talking about the blessings of the Spirit of God. We're talking the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he's also talking about the blessings that come from the Spirit. So we have not only the kind of blessing, they're spiritual, but we have the source of blessing from the Holy Spirit. These things will become more important to us as we go forward. For the difference, I want us to just think really quickly about how we interpret Old Testament scripture and New Testament scripture. If you read the Old Testament, you see a lot of rules, a lot of do's and don'ts. I want you to think in your mind about raising your children. Is that as they're little kids, you have to spell out everything. You have to come in fast and furious with the consequences or else they will quickly figure out how to game the system and take advantage of you and everybody around them. When we see other people's kids and they're like just terrible brats and everything like that, we always say somebody didn't do their job early on, right? This is what God is doing in the Old Testament. He's doing his job early on. He's setting a tone. He's saying that that you can't do this, you can do this, and if you do this wrong, I'm going to come in and make sure there's consequences and things. So the Old Testament, terrible little boil down here. There's a lot more to it than that. But the Old Testament is more as children under the care of God. And in the New Testament, in an economy of grace, because Jesus took those penalties and consequences for us, we have God treating us as adult sons and daughters. The relationship is still there, but the need to come in and smack the wrist every time you reach for the light socket isn't quite the same. Now the Holy Spirit comes and says, sure, you want to do that? Or you're going to touch the light socket and say, let's sit back and talk about what we've learned today, shall we? You see, the, the relationship has changed. In the Old Testament, there's a focus on material blessing. If you do things my way, you'll have successful families, you'll have good crops, you'll have the things that you can see and touch. That's what we have to tell children. It's going to go well for you in life if you do this. You won't have to um, go to bed early, you won't have to skip a meal, all these kinds of things that we come up with for punishments and stuff. 
In the New Testament, God cares about the material need. He deals with this in Matthew 6. He says, if you lack anything, just trust I'll take care of you like I do the flowers of the field and the sparrows. But he introduces us to our spiritual blessings. And Paul spells that out for us. He's going to talk to us about the holiness or the the uniqueness that we have in Christ. He's going to talk to us about being adopted into his family. He's going to talk to us about the redemption and forgiveness that we have in our for our sins. And he's going to tell us that we have a hope of glory. You see, he's saying to us, you have a far better currency than anyone's ever realized, including yourself. So currency matters. Security matters, and that's why he talks about the location of these blessings. He says that these blessings are in the heavenly places, and we know this to be where Jesus is right now at the Father's right hand. And you say, well, that sounds like you're saying, hey, you're not going to have any blessings on earth that's all out there waiting for you someday. But he's talking about the location as a security. It's like if all of your backing for your financial thing were in that vault and there's that many guards around it and there's that kind of protection and we look for FDIC in our banks and all these kinds of things. It's like what would happen to my investment if things went wonky? And so Paul is saying you don't have to worry about that because it's seated right next to Jesus who is seating right, seated right next to the Father. It's in the heavenly places. Jesus is there literally, we are there representatively. I've been watching, um, you know, a fair amount of basketball. I don't want to say a lot of basketball. I've been watching a lot of basketball lately. We've had a lot of game sevens in the playoffs. And everybody loves a game seven atmosphere because it's, what do they say? It's win or go home. And it's amazing to me, no matter what the sport is, particularly I watch the NBA and stuff, and you can see the, the people on the court side because they can get right up on the game. It's amazing to me how it brings out the celebrities in those moments. You start recognizing, oh, I know that actor, I know that singer, I know that whatever. And you can always tell who they are. There's kind of an entourage with them. They're always wearing something that kind of stands out and everything. And then you think to yourself, you're like, how did, I didn't see them there in game three. Now all of a sudden they care about this and, and these people that are usually down there and stuff, it's like you gotta work really hard to get those tickets, you gotta spend a ton of money and everything. And somebody like a Justin Bieber, I love picking on the Biebs, right? Somebody like him can just be like, you know what, I wanna go to game seven. Hey, get me some tickets. That's all he needs to do. And he's there for all the world to see and it helps his brand. We get to talk about who he's with and what they talked about and all these kinds of things. When we see somebody in the best seats, it represents things to us. It represents privilege. It represents an access to power or wealth and security. Paul is saying that our security is in Christ in the best seat next to the Father in heaven. He's going to tell us a little bit more about this when we get to Chapter 2 in verse 5, he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I just want to make this point as quickly as I can, and we'll close. Ephesians is bringing us into the atmosphere of the spiritual world at the beginning, and it's going to walk us through the atmosphere of the spiritual world at the end. I'm sorry I keep doing this. I do beginning to your right, and I do ending. I'm going to try to work on that, mirror myself. This is where your beginning is, right, mentally? End is over here. I'll try to work on that. So what Ephesians is doing is he's walking, what Paul is doing is he's walking us into the reality of the spiritual world right out of the gate in the first three verses. 
that there is wealth and security and, and a whole treasure trove in the heavenlies and they are spiritual blessings. And then by the end of the book, he's going to awaken us to our warfare in the spiritual world and say the battle that you're fighting here on earth is not just contained to the physical that you see. This is how he says it in chapter 6. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, that sounds like he's ending on somewhat a negative note, but we have to remember where he's beginning. He's beginning with your security, your treasure is in that same atmosphere. So when you get to the understanding that that's where your battle lies to, then we instantly start thinking victory, not necessarily defeat. No, our victory is secure in the heavenly places, but it's expressed, as we'll see in the middle of this letter, it's expressed in the success of how we conduct ourselves, our walk, to use Paul's word, in this world. I hope you see the unity or the balance and the harmony of the Trinity, the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit taking place. We have the Father's riches. We have the Son's purchase. We have the Spirit's security. We see all three members of God working for our good, providing for us a treasure that we didn't yet realize. And if we are in Christ, which means we've heard the truth and we've responded in belief, then we're saints. So can you see how starting to realize that and own that title a little bit more would start to bridge our divides with other believers? Can you see why Paul would say, I'm going to build unity in the church, but I want to start with you guys understanding that you all have the same title. You've all been forgiven of the same types of things. You've all have the same treasures in Christ. Our treasure is secure because the blessings are in and from the spirit. So we can start asking ourselves, how does being seated at the right hand of God change our perspective on our mission to bring believers together? And that's what I'm praying that, that uh, Paul will continue to show us through the power of the Holy Spirit as we study this letter together. I'm going to ask you to stand and let's pray before the worship team leads us. Lord God, we have consumed a lot this morning. We've taken on a lot. So sometimes we walk away wondering what did it all mean or what were the parts I was supposed to grab. So Lord, that's where we ask for your spirit to settle our hearts, to clarify in our minds what you have for us in this. But help us, Lord, mostly to grow in our belief that you have afforded for us the greatest riches and the most secure treasure and that we share that together even with our brother and sisters that drive us crazy, even with our churches that we don't necessarily agree with sometimes and things that, that those of us that are in Christ that are living by the word of your counsel have the same treasure. Build this in us, Lord. Help us to uh, find this grace and to live by this grace as we live before you in Jesus' name. Amen.